Today is our second Sunday in our Dreamer Sermon series, and we find ourselves in the Gospel of Matthew, where we don't find Zachariah, who Seth preached on last week, and we don't find Mary, or we largely don't find Mary, who we'll talk about next week. But we do find, unique to Matthew, the story of Joseph and his dream. Now, I have to be honest with you, maybe because of my feminist leanings, but I used to think of Joseph as a side character, along for the ride, while, let's be honest, Mary does all of the hard work. And Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is the showstopper. Joseph seemed like some third-tier actor, maybe worth an honorable mention, but I confess, the more that I explored this text, the importance of Joseph took new light. Maybe those third-tier characters have more to teach us than we give them credit for. After all, Joseph, heart transformed by his dream, is the first person to live out the gospel message. Joseph is the first person that lives out the message of radical love and acceptance that Jesus will preach and live for and die for. Joseph lives the righteousness not of custom and culture, but of the gospel. And he does this because of his dream. Because of Joseph's dream, his heart is changed, transformed, his actions taking a different path. Not only to just do a good or a kind thing, but to ask the question, if what is good is truly good enough. And to choose not just what is right, but to choose instead the action that is extravagant and ridiculous and seemingly foolish in the eyes of the world. Joseph is called to live the gospel, which asks all of us to put our faith into action, to put our faith into action in ways that rock culture and convention. And I wonder, this Advent season, if we are willing to do the same. A reading from Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Amen. Would you please pray with me? 
Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorified in your sight. For you, O God, are our rock, and you are our redeemer. Amen. The Gospel of Luke tells stories of women and of Gentiles, making the story of Jesus not a Jewish reform movement, but a message for all people. But in Matthew, where we find ourselves situated today, we see a great focus on Jewish identity. While Luke begins with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth with Mary and her cousin, while Mark has no nativity at all and just jumps into Jesus's ministry as a young adult, and while John's coming of Christ into the world is some cosmic poem about the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, in Matthew, we start with Jesus's ancestry and his connection to King David, a patriarch of Israel, through his non-biological father, Joseph. Because to a Jewish audience, this lineage would have denoted Jesus's power in his familial relationship, his connection to prophecy of a Messiah from the Davidic line coming. As a gospel, largely written for a Jewish audience, righteousness plays an enormous role within Matthew. Within Jesus's ministry in this gospel, time and again, we see him come against those labeled as righteous, the scribes and the Pharisees. We hear Jesus say things to this righteous group. He'll say, you have said, but I say unto you. You talk of tradition and custom and practice and law, but I say to you that love throws out convention and the rules out the door, and that this is truly righteous. It's in Matthew where we're confronted with some difficult parables about what righteousness looks like. It's in Matthew where we find the parable of the workers in the vineyard, each starting at a different time during the day, and at the end of the day, each receiving equal pay, and Jesus saying that this is what is righteous. And here in the first chapter of Matthew, we see that theme of righteousness again. So let's explore it a little bit deeper. In chapter one, Mary and Joseph are engaged. Though the term engaged does not hold the significance of their relationship. In our world today, engagements are often times where couples plan their wedding, but they also, hopefully, are times of discernment where a couple truly explores how the covenant of marriage, the promises that they make to one another before God, will change them and change their relationship. And now, in our time, a couple can separate during an engagement, maybe with a hard conversation and possibly the loss of a non-refundable deposit, but both parties can move on from their lives. But in Jesus' time, there were two stages within a marriage. The first, the engagement, or the masutu in Greek, or the kedishin in Hebrew, was a part of a relationship that was a binding, where partners had made promises to one another, and they were merely working out some of the finer details and planning on the party. This step was so serious that the only way to break this engagement was through a divorce. 
I can imagine Joseph's shock in discovering Mary pregnant. After having made these promises and plans with one another, after having entered into this new state of relationship with each other. And instead, they have to live into this new reality. Their trust seemingly broken, Joseph's hope for the future forever changed. But in the passage, we are told that Joseph is a righteous man. And so instead of exposing Mary's seeming indiscretion, instead of possibly putting her in physical harm, for women were stoned in that time for such acts, Joseph is righteous. He's going to do the right thing. And the right thing is letting Mary go on her way, back to her family, letting her move on from the promises that they made to one another. It was a good thing, but was it good enough? It was a righteous thing, but was it really? This righteousness that Joseph is living into was the righteousness of the time, of the culture, of the waters in which Mary and Joseph swam, but it was not the righteousness which God calls for and that Jesus proclaimed. There was once a French priest living in the countryside. As the quiet of night settled, a knock came on the door, and a homeless stranger, draggled from the road, entered into his home, searching for shelter. The priest offered a place to stay and a meal to fill his belly. And in the morning he awoke, his guest gone, vanishing as quickly as he had come. But the stranger, as the stranger left, so too did all the silver. Gone were their tools for eating, and gone was their illusion of safety. The woman keeping house, not only bemoaning this physical loss, also she was filled with worry, the worry of the what might have beens, the harm that could have befallen them, if only. The priest, though, claims that the silverware should have never belonged to him, but instead truly belonged to the poor, and having left with his guest, had finally found its true place of belonging. The priest resumed his quiet life, only to have a group of angry police burst in on him one breakfast. The guest from the night before held between them and the guards filled with pride as they told the, police, or the priest of this suspicious man whose guilty walk had signaled their investigation, upon which his silver had been discovered. The priest replied with a smile and a laugh, walking towards his guest, my friend, why did you forget the candlesticks? They would have gotten a nice price along with the silverware. The guards are aghast, so the man's story was true? And they confirm, they ask the priest, well, sh should this man be released? <laughs> of course he should be released. And friend, before you go, let me give you these as well. His guest in disbelief himself, asks if this is true. Is he truly allowed to go? Yes, but before you do here, said the priest, handing him the candlesticks, take them, and friend, you are welcome to come again any time, day or night. The front door is always 
unlocked and open for you. I remember reading that story for the first time as a ninth grader in English class. I actually had someone at the last service tell me that they made every person in their family when they were in eighth grade read that, and I was kind of astounded. (laughs) We have high standards in this church, apparently. Um, But I remember reading it for the first time myself in ninth grade. And it's a story that for many of us has become so familiar that, like, just like the gospel, that is it, it's lost a lot of its revolutionary nature. We know what happens after all. In the story of Jean Valjean and Les Miserables, we see the brokenness of humanity that makes a man steal to feed his family and then imprisons him for years. We see systematic oppression where there is no hope, no chance for a dream. But there is always hope. The priest, instead of doing what was smart or right or just in the eyes of the world, the priest dared to dream that a radical act of compassion could forever change the heart of a man. Because dreams are revolutionary. For they dare to see the world for what it is. There is no blind eye turning, no platitudes or pretending, but honesty. And dreams begin to create a world only after exploring the one we have, which is different. And what's essential in Joseph's dream, where we find ourselves today, is that it's not passive. But Joseph's dream demands participation. It changes his course of action and his life. Maybe this is why, time and again, the angel who comes in dreams this Advent season almost comically tells Mary and Joseph, the shepherds in the field, do not be afraid. Because the dream of the gospel message is terrifying. It asks us to love in ways that do not fit into our world's definition of righteous. But it demands more of us than is comfortable and convenient. For Joseph had been acting righteously according to Jewish custom. He had been acting with compassion and mercy, but he was called to do more. He was called to dream of a world where God comes not in the powerful privileged, but Joseph was called to dream of a world where God could enter into his messy reality. He was called to dream of a world where judgment was not his work, but God's. Joseph dared to dream of what God's kingdom would look like. And Joseph was changed by this dream. And he lived it. There's a beautiful song that our choir sings. Its lyrics are words of a poem that were scribbled on a wall in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. The words of the poem are, I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in love even when I don't feel it. And I believe in God even when God is silent. 
These words are more than words. They are a dream. A dream that demands action. A dream that demanded action for those who saw it all those years ago. I can imagine the way that those words inspired hope. Hope to live in the face of an impossible inhumanity. Dreams demand action for each of us, just like they did for Joseph. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when faced with a world gone mad, living in that same time in Nazi Germany, he dared to dream because he knew that the fear that had created the hate that had taken over his country was not what God had hoped for for humanity. That the kingdom was not a place built on hatred and exclusion, bigotry, white supremacy, or anti-Semitism. Bonhoeffer believed in this dream so much that he was eventually arrested for his resistance work. He was taken to a military prison and a concentration camp where he died. But in one of his letters on this dream of a different world, Bonhoeffer wrote this. He said, Jesus stands at the door knocking. In total reality, he comes in the form of the beggar, of the dissolute human child in ragged clothes, asking for help. He confronts you in every person you meet. As long as there are people, Christ will walk the earth as your neighbor, as the one through whom God calls to you, speaks to you, makes demands on you. That is the great seriousness and the great blessedness of the Advent message. Christ is standing at the door. He lives in the form of a human being among us. So friends, this Advent season, may we be open to God's startling, frightening, world-altering dream. As with the characters in this story, each of our parts to play is our own, and each of our dreams might live a little bit differently in the world. Maybe this season you need to forgive and truly let go of some hurt that you have harbored in your heart for far too long. Maybe this season you are being called to see, to hear, to feel Jesus in the unexpected, messy, and complicated places of your life. Maybe this Advent, our dream message is already being uttered in the longing of our own heart, in the wisdom of our children, in the need of a homeless man you pass every day on your way to work. For Christ is standing at the door. He lives in the form of a human being among us. And so may we, like Joseph, be open to these dreams. May we, like Joseph, have hearts transformed that we might live differently. So we too may live as righteous people, embodying the radical love of God's gospel. Amen.